0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: So, State of the Union, I'm coming away feeling like everything's cool, right?
2: Uh, I think this state of foreign policy in the State of the Union was even less than the usual light foreign policy content in usual states of the Union.
1: It was like an amuse-bouche of foreign policy.
2: Uh, (laughs) No, it wasn't even that. It It was was like one cashew
0: in a (laughs) mixed-nut bowl. (laughs) I mean, I I personally was concerned he was going to, you know, declare war on North Korea, like, right there there. on on the podium. So I'm I'm feeling relieved, yeah. Okay.
2: I, I also find it interesting that in the last you know, month or two, the administration has announced open-ended military commitments in both Syria and Afghanistan, and yet neither of them got a mention at all. Like, this is your chance to speak to the American people about why you're doing this stuff. They don't care about that. Well, you might be right.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the state of the hashtag memo edition. I am Shane Harris. Hashtag reporter, that's me.
2: (laughs) Does that mean you report on hashtags? Or you are a hashtag? I'm a
1: hashtag reporter. (laughs) Hashtag real news um you
2: know that's gonna be a beat in the entertainment magazines one of these days hashtag, The hashtag reporter. The hashtag reporter yeah like reporting on hashtags yeah like whatever the latest kardashian hashtag is gonna be
1: i'm sure there's probably like i having worked at an entertainment magazine before a you're right that probably will happen if it hasn't <laughs> happened already and it will be like a little column somewhere in the front of the book like on a very busy page of stuff right and it'll be the intern's job to compile hashtag
2: of the week yeah exactly
1: trending <laughs> well, i think it's funny if i have trending in a magazine but it'll happen it's probably already happened maybe rational security leader listeners are like reading in touch and style and can tell us you know star magazine yeah let us know We'll <laughs> get listeners. right on that <laughs> hashtag crickets <laughs> <laughs> i am here in the jungle studio with my good friends tamara koffman and quinta jurassic quinta is back hello
0: hello hello
1: she is back at Lawfare.
0: I've been repatriated.
1: Right, Repatriated from that horrible institution, the Washington Post. Oh,
0: couldn't stand it. Yeah. Who wants to work there?
1: We did a little musical too. We were like in the revolving door, like you were on the way out. I know.
0: I, I think. I think there was a span of like five days in between where there was neither me nor Shane in the building.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and they, they were and so relieved. The, po- <laughs> the post quality declined precipitously during was those like, five Phew, days. Finally. <laughs> Oh, it's we're thrilled to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, it's it's so great, good Quinta. to be back. Uh, ben and Susan are both away in undisclosed locations. Not the same undisclosed location.
2: Although now that President Trump has decided he's going to keep Guantanamo open forever, you know, (laughs) know. (laughs) there's Uh, a place for them to go. There's a
1: place. There's a place. Um, I think we're we're, we're going to probably have to talk about that on next week's podcast, because this week is jam packed full of stuff we want to get to. Um, First up, there have been major developments in the Russia probe as House Republicans move to declassify a mysterious hashtag memo. And the Ru- FBI's- Wait,
2: Russia's our friend.
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Hashtag friends. Uh, and the FBI's number two steps down. A new book reveals the inner workings of the Israeli spy machine and smart watches are giving away U.S. forces locations while they're jogging. That doesn't sound like a very smart watch.
2: It's a very smart watch, but maybe not a very smart soldier. (laughs) Maybe. We're going to talk
1: about that. Um, Let's first talk about um, the hashtag memo. So I'm sure listeners are following this pretty closely, but just to bring you up to speed... The Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee voted this week to declassify a memo. It's about four pages, we're told, uh, written by uh, the staff of the chairman, Devin Nunes, which purports to describe what he sees as malfeasance, corrupt behavior by FBI agents, and the Justice Department working on the Russia probe. And we're told that it – In reports have said that it It essentially references underlying classified materials produced by the Justice Department and may focus in large part on the uh, process for obtaining a FISA warrant on Carter Page. You remember him? Uh, former- the coffee boy. No, that was Rich Wappinopoulos. <laughs> Carter Page is is
0: the one with the hat.
1: Carter Page is like the Chauncey Gardner of the... uh, Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. definitely.
1: (laughs) In more ways than one. Yeah, yeah. he's a treasure. Um, So the memo is, obviously, Democrats uh, uh, have... Publicly said they have a lot of uh, uh, issues with this memo and what they see as a tendentious kind of argument that it's making. Um, I want to kind of get into just some of the the, the politics of this maybe first. And, and Quinta, let me let me kick this to you because I mean obviously here what you have is Republicans and Democrats fundamentally disagreeing about what classified information says. Not all of whom have read the underlying classified information and an attempt to now selectively declassify some things to prove a point. Um, I mean, this is when we talk a lot about politicization of intelligence. I mean, this seems, no matter sort of which side you're on, to be a fairly textbook example of politicizing intelligence.
0: Yes. I mean, and there there are a lot (laughs) of data points to add to that conclusion. The one I would point to is that, Um, Adam Schiff, who's the lead Democrat on the committee, uh, put forward a motion basically to have I think there was a motion to have the FBI come and brief everyone on the committee and then later a motion to allow everyone on the committee to see the classified material on which the memo is based before they voted to release it to the public. And the Republicans voted it down. So they decided that they didn't want more information about what was going on before releasing it. I mean there's that's that's just one of many 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 examples of what's happened here. I mean I would say what I find really notable is how I I first, realized that this was going to be a thing when I started seeing it pop up in the Twitter hashtags, mm-hmm. the hashtag release the memo and hashtag right. like FISA memo, Which I think. really
1: caught on fire. It really
0: know? caught on fire, and um, the good people at the Hamilton 68 project flagged that it, it was being tweeted a lot by accounts that may be linked to Russian bots. Um, I would also point out if you went on – are the Donald, which is a subreddit that is sort of one of the more noxious pits of Trump support on the internet. Um, You will find people who were all over that and were posting on Reddit about how they were trying to push that hashtag because their, I don't know, belief or faux belief was that it fits into this sort of vast conspiracy theory that I won't bore you with it, but it involves Pizzagate and the Pope. And Mueller is actually working with Trump uh, to prosecute Obama. So it's, there's this sort of, yeah, there's this vast like or conspiracy theory and the memo kind of slotted into that right. and gained this this life. So it's not even okay, the, the politicization like... didn't even come from the committee. It comes from the internet and then the committee kind of glommed onto it.
2: Okay. So that's like on the fringe of the fringe of the conspiracy theory. Trump supporters is that kind of vast conspiracy. But it seems to me that there is a strong dimension of of politics. Ticking and political framing in what members of Congress have been doing, not just around this memo, but around the idea that the whole investigation of Russian interference in the elections and of the potential collusion or engagement between Russia and the Trump campaign is. Um, is just all coming from this Steele dossier and that the Steele dossier is unverified and it's probably crap, and right. so therefore the whole thing is crap. And that's what this memo relates to, right? This is alleging that the request for renewal of a FISA warrant for Carter Page was based on information from the Steele memo, and therefore it's corrupt and the FBI is is um, abusing its power by relying on the Steele memo. And I think that this is... I guess two things come out for me here. One is um, the extent to which Republican members of Congress have not just bought into but really fully embraced this narrative of, um, of a kind of counter conspiracy. That it's not that the Trump people on the Trump campaign were colluding with Russia. It's that the FBI was colluding with Clinton supporters against Trump and against Russia. Um and they, you know, the the politicking around this memo is just evidence of how much they've bought into that. A. B, it the fact that Devin Nunes is able to be the driver of this among congressional Republicans, despite how thoroughly he discredited himself on this issue in the very early days of the Trump administration by making that late night visit to the white house and
0: the midnight you know, run they're the mi- apparently calling it
2: right and you know and yet congressional republicans are willing to sort of hold him up as this paragon of you know truth telling <laughs> And it just says to me how far they're willing to go, how sort of much they're willing to stretch in their quest to stick close to a very, very tainted president.
1: And on that point, too, one of the things I'm fascinated by is you know, because there, I, I, I think I'm probably on safe ground saying that there is not a universally held opinion in the Republican caucus in the house that Devin Nunes is just right on about all of this. And and right. I mean, he has a history of, of, you know, making some pretty big pronouncements that don't really tend to hold up. So is the desire you guys think on the part of Republicans to let this go forward because there's some real belief that there is a conspiracy or is it more that this is a useful tactic to muddy the water and sort of let, you know, Nunes do his thing. And, and it appears to, by the way, already be having some kind of effect insofar as that, you know, the idea that there's corrupt actors working in the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, I think, is something that probably is resonating with a lot of people. Also, given that Andrew McCabe, the number two of the FBI, just stepped down this week, you know, for, for different reasons, but that will be read by some people as we or cleaning house and there's a need to get these people out.
0: Yeah, so I would say, Shin, to the, to the first point about the question of how many members of the Republican caucus actually trust the memo. So um, Ben and I did a little reporting project where we right. called up the offices of everyone on the majority of the committee, minus Nunes, because we already know what he thinks. We didn't call the Democrats because we already know what they think. They've been unified in their opposition to this. Um, to ask, basically... Do you have confidence in the factual conclusions in the memo? And most people refused to respond after we bothered them repeatedly. Um, and only three of the 12 would say that they had confidence in the memo's
2: factual claims.
1: Um, only three out of 12.
2: Three out of 12. Yeah, exactly. One wonders how many of them actually know what the factual claims in the memo are. I mean, well,
0: that's the thing, they have no way to evaluate it. Right. I mean, and so I would also say, I think that these ideas, they begin at the fringe and they move toward the center. And what happens is that I think there's a certain amount of people on the fringe, like Redditors and people on 4chan and perhaps Devin Nunes, um, who really do believe that there is some kind of vast conspiracy. But that for everyone else, this kind of thing is basically useful as just chum to throw into the grist mill. To, to just spin up smoke around the Mueller investigation, create confusion, create a sort of ambient atmosphere of distrust without actually needing to prove that any of the specific claims in the memo are, are, are true, right? Like, what's going to happen is this thing is going to be released. Everyone's going to debunk it. I'm sure it will be debunked. Um, and it'll just sort of hang over everything for a few weeks until we get, you know, the next piece of chum that's checked into the machine.
2: So I... I don't disagree with any of that, but I wonder if, especially as midterms approach, there's an additional and distinct incentive for Republican members of Congress to to buy into this stuff and repeat it back, which is that within the echo chamber for each party, there's a very tight feedback loop, right? So if a Republican member gets a slot on cable TV and gets to repeat some of the stuff, they're going to get very positive feedback from the party base. They're going to get... Uh, positive feedback from their colleagues kind of backslapping. Here we are all in this together. They're going to get positive feedback from Republican donors who want to see, you know, consolidated support around the president. And all of this helps them feel stronger and more confident going into a midterm election that at the national level looks pretty tricky for the Republican Party. Um, and so I I think that, you know, it's important for us to always take a look at that stream of logic around the increased tribalism of partisan politics, you could do a similar analysis for different things on the Democratic Party side and see those same kind of feedback loops in operation. But increasingly, I, I have to say, I'm not sure it's as much about uh, throwing crap at the other side as it is consolidating your own support.
1: I also want to touch just briefly on Andy McCabe, the number two, stepping down at the bureau. And it was expected, we should say, that he was going to retire. In fact, it had been essentially reported, if not announced, um, that he would be leaving in March. But he leaves a little bit early, uh, according to reports, including The Post and The Times, following a meeting that he had with the FBI Director Christopher Wray, in which Wray discussed this ongoing Inspector General's investigation, which relates to the FBI's handling of the Clinton email investigation. Uh, And uh, Wray just decided to go ahead... And to leave now. I mean, what what do you all think is the significance of any of his departure? And kind of how are you reading? You know, there's there's the there's the political fallout of such a move, but there's also just the, the bureaucratic machinations that are going on here. You know, Ray was going to leave, or sorry, McCain was going to leave. It's just that this is precipitated by now this new insertion of the inspector general report.
2: Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the pressure that Chris Ray must be feeling from the White House and from the attorney general himself um, and, you know, the importance of his resisting that political pressure. Uh, so you could read this as him caving and saying to McCabe, look, you've got enough leave vacation time saved up. Can we just, you know, relieve you of command and you can be on vacation for the next two months? Um, do do me a favor, right? Um, and that would be upsetting. But I actually think that what I've found most upsetting in the reporting around um, McCabe's departure and what preceded it is the revelation that John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, while President Trump was in Davos, uh, Kelly was tasked by Trump to call repeatedly to the Justice Department, to um, the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General, and push them, push them, push them on the need to clean house at Justice and the FBI. And just first of all, the fact of that degree of communication between the White House Chief of Staff and the Attorney General is a violation of all kinds of uh, norms. Um, But secondly, the the intensity of a uh, view from the White House that it demonstrates and their willingness to twist arms like that. That's the thing I find most disturbing.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think it, we haven't seen any sign that, you know, Ray received a message from the White House that McCabe had to go now or anything like that, but it does speak to the amount of pressure that he's under um and my read on it and this is t- a total hypothesis but if you're ray i can see how this can look like kind of a win-win for you right because you you know that there's this inspector general report which by the way is not is not completed yet right. um which is an important caveat here um you know that we we have no way of knowing how serious the Concerns that have been raised about McCabe's conduct are the post reported on them, but we, we i mean, we—we we don't know how seriously the inspector general is taking them. Right. So, we
1: reported that there was like a three week gap from the time that the FBI becomes aware of the, the, the emails the, on the Anthony Wiener Wiener's laptop, laptop right. and they investigate, but it's not clear what the right. gap was about. Exactly.
0: Right. And right. the investigation is not complete. So but what I would say is if you're Ray, you can say, OK, McCabe, McCabe has basically been used as target practice by Fox and by the president for Mm -hmm. the last few months. I've already come under an enormous amount of heat. I've had to put my job on the line to keep him, right? Um, This inspector general report is gonna come out. I'm gonna get, you know, maybe bits will leak, I don't know. I'm gonna get an enormous amount of shit for having McCabe there, even while he just, you know, he has a few months left before he goes. Um, and that's going to put me in trouble because I'm going to have to put my neck on the line again. And if I actually want to quit, that's a pretty big bomb to set off. On the other hand, now I can say, I have these concerns about your behavior that show up in the inspector general report that's underway. Um, apparently he offered McCabe a demotion, essentially, and McCabe chose to leave instead. But now he can say, I didn't push him out because of pressure from the president, I was just concerned about these inspector general right. allegations. Right. So he can, he can kind of have it both ways. There's a cover there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of if we're talking about sort of bureaucratic machinations, mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it allows him to keep the bullet in the chamber um, if he ever really does need to break the glass and resign.
1: And just as a last point on things that give cover, I, mean, I think there's a lot of speculation that the president who said last night at the State of the Union address on a hot mic that 100% he's going to have the memo released, would use the memo as some kind of a cover for firing Rod Rosenstein. Um, And so obviously we'll have to see what's in it. But I mean, it seems like that could, you know, is sort of in the same pattern. I don't want to attribute the same motivations to Ray as the president. But I mean, it, it certainly seems like that memo will land in a moment when people are primed for the president to move to replace Rosenstein as the deputy attorney general and to try to find some justification for doing so in the findings of the Hipsy Memo.
2: Well, and this is why, despite what Quinta said about the sort of bureaucratic logic of what Chris Ray appears to have done around McCabe, I think it's foolish. Oh, I, I would agree. I think it's foolish for somebody in Chris Ray's position to think that he comes out the other side of that. And there isn't an immediately pressure from the White House to do the next horrible thing. Which which we already saw when he, when he right. pushed
0: out General Counsel Jim Baker. I mean, then they went after McCabe. There's right. no and satisfaction. So
2: there's Not only is there no satisfaction, but each concession is merely a signal to the White House to push ahead farther. And Rosenstein is the next target. And, you know, so I I think it's just a, a reminder of something that we've discussed a lot before the in terms of the dilemmas of senior officials serving in this administration. And, you know, you hold out the hope that they have the resignation letter in the drawer and they're willing to be people of principle and stand up in the face of abuses of power. And yet what you see um, time and again, whether it's John Kelly or... Uh, or Chris Ray in this instance, is that there are compromises that they can justify to themselves for the sake of staying in the chair and holding back the flood. But each compromise actually is it's death by a thousand cuts instead of death by one big gash. And, you know, I I just don't think this is going to end. But can I just note that the underlying fact that leads to this memo is that the Trump administration's Justice Department renewed a FISA warrant on Carter Page. <laughs> <Yep>. Okay, <laughs> like that means that's kind that, of gotten lost here. That law enforcement still thought in 2017 that there was a reason to keep surveilling this guy. Like, oh my god, <laughs>
1: yeah. that is sort of the lead, isn't it? Yeah,
2: the buried lead. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah, it's amazing <laughs>
0: right. that that's what's gotten buried.
1: Here. Right. Right. Um, all right, let's move on to our next topic. Um, Last week in the New York Times Magazine, a riveting uh, account. We love this. We love this story. Didn't
2: we? Oh, it's what a story. What reporting. Yeah.
1: By uh, 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 Ronan Bergman about uh, Israel's efforts over many years to assassinate Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the PLO, of course. Um, Ronan is sort of a, I, I don't want to call him a legend because he's not dead, but like Ronan is sort of the premier. <laughs> intelligence and national security reporter in Israel, you know, the kind of the chronicler of the spy services, and really has has kind of, you know, pushed out a kind of a tour de force with this article. Um, Tamara, I want to get your reaction to it first. I mean, say the one thing that struck me was, aside from just the narrative verve of this piece, um, it was fascinating to see the real conflict and the grappling that many Israeli officials were having with whether to go out and essentially get Arafat, and I mean maybe even get him before he became sort of the heroic national fig- world figure that he became, and to the point at which he becomes so big and so important that it's almost too dangerous to kill him because of, of what that would incite. Um, I would love to get your reaction to that. That it seemed to me that was the the dilemma at the heart of this kind of uh, um, uh, mission was just really sussed out in this piece in a vivid way.
2: So, yeah, I think that there were two things that were really interesting about it. Bergman frames it in the article as uh, the Israeli security establishment really wrestling with issues of, you know, targeted killing and democracy and a free society. And what does it mean to do this sort of thing? I have to say that's not quite how I understood it reading through the article. I think it was much more a set of debates about the cost benefit, um, the political Cost to Israel The reputational risk for Israel Involved in carrying out a targeted Killing of somebody who as you just noted, Shane was increasingly becoming a kind of folk hero in, the, in um, the Palestinian movement, of nationalist movement, of course, and more broadly among you know leftist nationalist movements and Arab nationalism and so on over the course of the 1970s and 1980s. But it, it's also a story about how Israel's various attempts to uh, weaken, to and to target Arafat actually helped build him up, help create. That reputation as some kind of folk hero, uh, and and so that to me was a really interesting portrait, um, and the fact that people in the Israeli security establishment, uh, all up and down the chain of command, were having arguments and using bureaucratic stratagems, you know, to try and and push their point of view, um, about political and reputational risk that to me was really interesting and so this gets to the other point that i think is really well illuminated by this piece is the iconoclasm of the israeli security establishment Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that makes israel's military and intelligence um, structure very very different culturally from other highly effective capable um, democratic states uh It's and it's legendary in Israel is, you know, they have this um, ethos that they call purity of arms, that they use uh, force and they use, um, even if they use horrible means like assassination for moral purposes um, and uh, even junior commanders, have a certain degree of freedom in the Israeli military to argue with their superior officers. And so this magazine article opens with an anecdote about Mm -hmm. uh, the guy in charge of an operation, an, uh, uh, an Air Force operation that's targeting a plane that supposedly has Yasser Arafat on it. And he's basically like bullshitting His commanders, in order to stall for time and demanding that the Mossad go back and get more intelligence.
1: Right. To make sure it's actually Arafat on the plane. Right.
2: And this is, you know, this is not the kind of thing you would see in the US chain of command. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. work that way. We're much more hierarchical, we're much Mm -hmm. more respectful of authority. And you can see the benefits, but also the dangers of that kind of system at work.
1: We've talked about the show Fauda on on the show, the podcast before, too same kind of thing that comes across and that. Yeah, it's, you're totally right to point that out. It's almost like you're reading these exchanges going like, wait, how does this work exactly? <laughs>
0: right. Well, the thing is, when, when I started watching Fauda, and part of this is because of the language barrier, because I know neither Arabic nor Hebrew, I actually had a lot of difficulty figuring out who was in command, because they're just all arguing all the time. <laughs> they're all yelling at each other right. all the time
1: about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Quint, I'm curious what you think, too. I mean, without the I mean, you write a lot at uh, uh, law, for, of course, about like um, uh, law of armed conflict and and IHL and targeted killing. I mean, the sort of the it, it struck me that I mean, there was the, the Israelis are grappling with the legal dimensions, but also the political and also the moral, and it's like they're kind of all in the same mix a little bit. Um, And that also seems distinct from, I guess, the way that traditionally in the United States we think about these kind of counterterrorism operations. We kind of try to hive them off into these different categories, maybe.
0: Yeah. What I was actually struck by, I mean, in my pre-Trump life, the stuff that I wrote about for Luffer, as you say, was really writing about President Obama's approach to targeted killing, where he sort of very intentionally presented himself as someone who took not only the legal, but the moral questions really, really, really seriously on a personal level as the commander in chief Mm. and really wrestled with them. And you can argue about to what extent that's performative and to what extent Mm. it was uh, genuine, possibly both. But what I was struck by in this is that it's, it's that same kind of Pulling, pulling the moral and legal questions together and sort of mixing them up and really feeling the pain of the decision, except where Obama very intentionally sort of pulled that all into himself as the commander in chief. I mean, he if you look at the way that the targeting process was designed, they involved the president to I think a pretty unprecedented extent. I'm, like difficult decisions would go to him hmm. personally. Um, and that he sort of took that on as the burden of being the president. And my critique of it was that there's a there's a sort of – there's a loneliness to that, that he's saying, I you know, I'm alone at the top and only I can make mm. this terrible choice and therefore, I you know, I bear the burden on my shoulders, et cetera. Here, it's sort of everyone in the chain of command is wrestling with it on every level, which I think is what Tammy gets to, which is so – I mean, to me as someone who my – academic background is in uh, moral philosophy is just totally fascinating as a case study Mm -hmm, beyond the, I mean, just insane hijinks that are described in this piece.
1: Yeah, the hijinks also, I mean, we should (laughs) emphasize. There, There are many. I mean, it's really, I mean, it is a caper in many ways. I mean, some of them were just kind of gobsmacking to the plans where there was the plan the Manchurian
2: on. Candidate plan. Well, yeah, oh Manchurian my god! They're
1: going to turn someone again. I mean, against to go in. they were going to like Arafat. program someone right. to. And it lasted for like three days, and he turned himself in. And then they were going to <laughs> blow up Arafat on a stage at a rally in a stadium. They were
0: going to blow up like and half then blow the up stadium. the stadium. Yeah, yeah. And then and then a plane that he was on, like a commercial jet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right with with other passengers.
1: On it. One of the things that made me think about too is there this kind of like you know. You know, kill the kill the baby in the crib metaphor, right? Of you know, get Arafat early, you know, kind of. Well, there the is actually of...
0: a baby who dies in the crib too. Well,
1: like there's that. That's it's got everything in this story, and it did make me think about that. There is that kind of operational philosophy when it comes to targeted killing strikes. So we used to say things like, you know, the number three in Al Qaeda is like the the. Uh, the most huh. dangerous position there is, right? Right,
2: cuz we've <laughs> killed that person yeah, killed him, times. so many times yeah. and like,
1: somebody just keeps moving into it.
2: Well, and I think that was one of the kind of underlying messages in the piece that Bergman doesn't make it explicit, but it's clearly something I think he's trying to demonstrate in the piece is the futility of targeted killing as a sort of, you know, with one stroke collapse a movement. Right. Um that that uh, someone like Yasser Arafat doesn't become the leader of a movement, you know, simply because he's skilled. Um, it's because he represents something, right. and that something is real, and it doesn't go away, even if the man himself has died. And you know, if you want uh, proof of that, look at the Palestinian national movement. Since Arafat's death, it hasn't gone away. Right. Um, and you know, although there was, there are certainly. Uh, I think Israelis who would make the argument that as long as the Palestinians don't have an effective, coherent, consolidated leadership, it's much easier for Israel to deal with the Palestinian problem. And that was the argument that many made on behalf of Arafat's assassination in the 70s and 80s, according to this article. But if you look at the situation today where the Palestinian leadership is weak, it's contested, it's largely viewed as using corrupt and abusive tactics to remain in power— Uh, in the face of its weakness. And that's not a gift to Israel, actually. That is a problem for Israel. Um, And especially, you know, as we look ahead to the inevitable departure of Mahmoud Abbas as the simultaneous head of the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, and the Fatah movement, which is the positions Arafat held as well, You know, I don't think it makes Israeli's lives any easier to have uh, a Palestinian to have Palestinians who have national aspirations and intense sentiment with no leader that Israelis can talk to.
0: I mean, I will say, again, I don't want to draw parallels that are too direct between the American and the Israeli cases, but there are parallels, obviously, and. This this debate over whether or not targeted killing of leadership makes sense is definitely something the United States has seen, too, as Shane says, that, you know, we keep picking off the number three of Al Qaeda. Like, is that really a good strategy that there there are similar questions? Um, it's just on it's on a very different scale. And obviously, the, the fact that the number three of Al Qaeda is across the ocean <laughs> means that there's the sort of the ambience is different.
2: Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering too that the period covered in this uh, Bergman piece, the 1970s and 1980s, is a period when Arafat's PLO and factions that he uh, had direct control over and was supporting were engaged in horrific acts of terrorism, international terrorism. uh, You know, raids into Israel that killed. Civilians that, mm-hmm. that killed children, um, hijackings. This was the heyday of, uh, of international terrorism that led to the, the first institution of airport security <laughs> screenings, for example. Um, and so the Arafat that the Israelis were targeting at that time was much more like the leadership of al-Qaeda to the United States now than the Arafat that existed at the time of his death.
1: So had R F F been wearing a Strava or other smart fitness <laughs> tracker, it would have been alternate m- history. Much easier for the Israelis to solve this problem. <laughs> um, yeah,
2: because apparently it's you can't just see where people have been. You can actually scrub the data and figure out who they are mm. and where they've been over time. Wow. Yeah.
1: So this is. Um, I will confess. I don't. I'd never heard of Strava. Or is it Strava or Strava?
0: I've never heard of it either, and my conclusion is that I should exercise more. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so I Strava, it's Strava. Matt says, okay. Okay. So it's it's like a Fitbit, right? It's like a fitness tracker, right, Matt? It's not a know? device okay.
2: itself. It's a it's, it's an a app. Plaf- it's a it's platform. A, it's a platform. Yeah. And my friends who are like serious triathletes and stuff love it.
1: Okay. So apparently, um, U.S. troops overseas love it. Um, <laughs> security <laughs> officials not so much <laughs> uh, because it. Uh, has this wonderful uh, uh, feature where it will show you using GPS exactly where you've been running or jogging or hiking, Um, and then apparently that information can be uh, obtained by people who are not you uh, and can essentially give people a, literally, kind of a roadmap straight into where sensitive U.S. facilities are overseas. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was, in a way, when I saw this story, I thought, like, I'm kind of surprised this hasn't been a thing already. I mean, it, it's a I mean, I got a Fitbit for Christmas like 2 years ago and kind of marvelled at how like look,
2: it'll show you exactly where you went when you went running. <laughs> like,
1: this doesn't seem safe at all.
2: So, yeah, I think that's amazing and and part of what's great about the great, terrifying, interesting about this story is that this feature um, which is not a flaw; it's a feature. <laughs> <Future> <laughs> which, it, it kind of is the app, right? Yeah, it's this, exactly this, but the, the ability to use it for this purpose—that is, figuring out where military personnel and installations are in odd places around the world—was discovered by an undergrad who was like That's doing so a paper great. for class and was sort of rooting around in this data. Wow! Right? <laughs> give give
0: that man a job.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't think he needs to finish his degree, but I do think it's worth noting that it's not just U.S. forces that are potential. Like anyone who has these things, and so a lot of my friends who have been, you know, intensely studying uh, the the maps. Um, are looking at some of these places, whether it's in eastern Syria or, you know, uh, North Africa, and trying to figure out, okay, are these American uh, forces? Are these Russian forces? You know, do the Iranians have Fitbits? Right, right, we don't right, right. know. It's not just Americans. You yeah. know, so now it's like, okay, what's the Fitbit penetration rate in <laughs> Sudan, right? Like, <laughs> you don't – but, you know, as far as like – the american uh, the american presence i think it's also worth remembering these aren't just military personnel these are aid workers these are diplomats right. these, these might be journalists like it could be anybody right, right. um and the utility you know the, or the security challenge i think relates more to military because the gps maps show patrol routes and things like that that are regularized
1: and it seems to me like it's it, it's it's We're we're talking about the obvious, the potential security risks to U.S. forces or to people overseas. But it also strikes me that, well, presumably some people in the intelligence community probably knew this capability existed on the market out there and would be really good if you wanted to track someone down. I mean, we sort of joked about the Arafat example. But if you knew that a particular target or someone that you were after was wearing a Fitbit device (laughs) – I mean, my God! Could they make it any easier for you?
0: So I want to just want to say what really amazes me about this. I mean, that basically everything about this is amazing. But, um, I mean, I went to the Strava Keep Map website last night. It's still up. Yeah, like you can click around. They haven't they haven't fixed anything. And there was, there was there was well, but there can't... was their response to it was just like their their PR response was essentially, well, you should have unchecked the permissions box.
2: Like, right, <laughs> but but isn't that the point that the responsibility for for operational security and for your data security is on you? And you know, for a lot of people, that sharing feature is part of the attraction. Like I can show my friends. Explain what that to me. Yeah, because yeah. That's okay. the part that
1: I was a little bit. And I confess, I just it's just my own ignorance of the subject. Okay, Why so I'm that's a runner. So I'm not like a
2: serious runner, but. I like you run to- marathons. No, no, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. Only half marathons, right? <laughs> I've done a 10K. That's know. a lot more than hey, I. I'm yeah. pushing 50. What's a K? I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> but Elvin? it's it then is pitasm. fun, you know, if you're going to another city and you want to know what's a good running route for your distance in that city, you can go to some of these websites where people share their running data. And you can see, like, oh, that guy did a six-mile loop on the Charles River. That looks really awesome. Or, oh, I see. Or, you know, here's how you access uh, this trail in New York City, huh. you know, from I... your hotel. You can look at other people's routes. And... Like turning
1: people into little cartographers. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, or you can, like, put up your route from last weekend's long run uh, on Facebook and say to your friends, like, anybody want to join me for this run next weekend? And your friends can look and see is that something they want to do. So, I and I think that for a lot of athletes in general, whether it's competition or uh, or just kind of mutual support and encouragement, that sharing feature is really really valuable. So I that makes total sense to me. I guess what I, what
0: surprised me is how totally blasé Strava was about this. That I can totally understand. Of course, you want to share your running routes with your friends. Like, that makes total sense. That's That sounds like a really useful feature. But it seems to me that the company should have thought about this.
2: Why is it first, their job?
0: Because they've developed the capability. I mean, and that they, I, I mean, I'm not saying that they would think about it and then say, gosh, we better not do this, but at least think about it. And the fact that they're, Response to these news stories is basically like, oh, suggests to me that they are not really thinking about what responsibilities, if any, they
2: do have here. I guess I'm a little skeptical that that's their burden to carry. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, every one of these soldiers um, who has a Fitbit probably also has a GPS-enabled phone. Um, and probably many more have GPS-enabled phones than have a, a GPS-enabled fitness tracker. And there are already regs that these guys are supposed to follow for OPSEC when they're deployed um, that specifically relate to gps <laughs> Enabled devices. And if they're not following the regs, that's on them. And the military anticipated this problem. And that's why the regs are there. So I, you know, I kind of feel like if Apple isn't liable, you know, if the people who, who, um, created the capability to use gps for ways and for everything else aren't liable then why is strava liable for this it's just not their problem
0: i guess i'm maybe this is just this has kind of been my bugbear over the past year with facebook um and to be clear when i say responsibility i don't mean like legal responsibility or anything like that i just mean you know think about it but we have seen a kind of shift in the past year with Russia and Facebook and Twitter bots and all that of sort of a mood in people wanting tech companies to take more responsibility for what can be done with their platforms. And I have come to think that that is probably a good thing. And so I think that I'm I'm reacting to this okay. in context of that that there's sort of there's a tech utopianism of you know like look at this amazing thing we can do oh you used it for this horrible purpose well that's not my problem and okay. I think I'm I'm seeing it in context of that
2: Got it so I think that connects back to a discussion we had on the show like a few months ago Shane I don't know if you remember about the internet of things and yeah. like is your toaster going to come and get you right. <laughs> And you know the fact that a lot of the companies that build these I- internet connected capabilities into their devices don't do anything about security right right that there's a, a that I think evidences a lack of forethought, a lack of responsibility and it creates a vulnerability that others can exploit for nefarious purposes. But I think what Strava has done here is they've created a capability that the specific capability is of use to their intended audience and they make it very easy to uh, disable that capability if you don't want it for any variety of reasons, privacy, security, whatever. So I feel like they've kind of done what they need to do. And the user has some responsibility, too. Now, if you take that to the sort of Facebook example, where you have a tech company that says, hey, we're a tech company, but they've actually become a content company, in a way, (laughs) you know, um, then I think, the balance between the responsibility of the t- of the company and the responsibility of the user user is a different balance.
1: All right, uh, let's move on to object lessons. Shane's uh,
2: like enough of that philosophical discussion. <laughs> let's move right. on to object lessons.
1: My object lesson is my Fitbit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so there.
1: <laughs> I liked your philosophical session. Thank it you. was just the perfect. It was like there was nothing else to say. It was just the perfect. <laughs> we, Tammy and I, we got it all. <laughs> And now for you, too. Uh, uh, I'm actually going to flag uh, as my object lesson um, the book that the New York Times magazine article by Ronan Bergman that we talked about comes from, which is his new book, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. I um, have not had a chance to read it yet, but um, it's I mean, it's highly anticipated. And I know he's been working on it for quite some time, I think. So I think this is going to be one that rational security listeners will want to. Check out, even if you have or haven't read the New York Times article. Uh, well,
2: and if you have, then you, you know this is going to be a riveting read. I mean, yeah. among other things, it's really well written. Yeah, and yeah. it paints this incredible picture. Yeah, he's a
1: great writer. Yeah, he yeah. really is. Uh, tomorrow, what's your object?
2: So my object is a tweet. Oh. <laughs> sure. tweet.
1: You're the hashtag reporter this week.
2: I am the hashtag <laughs> reporter this week. And the hashtag I'm reporting on today is hashtag I'm with Victor. Who is Victor, you ask? Victor Cha, Georgetown professor, uh, Korea expert, and uh, was reported months and months and months ago to be the Trump administration's nominee to be ambassador to South Korea, uh, a rumored appointment that was widely hailed uh, from the left, right and center of, of uh, the foreign policy world and widely hailed in South Korea. Uh Victor, um, and you know, full disclosure, Victor came to Georgetown as a junior professor when I was in grad school. I've known him a long time. I think he's incredibly smart, incredibly thoughtful. Um, and yesterday, the news broke that the Trump administration was not going to be nominating him to be ambassador to South Korea after all, reportedly, because in a private discussion with National Security Council staff he objected to the idea of a, quote unquote, bloody nose strike on North Korea. Um, and uh, if there were any questions about the veracity of this reporting, I think they were um, uh, blown out of the water by the fact that Victor today has an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, making the argument against a bloody nose strike. And, sort of you know, it's a little bit of a see you later, guys message to uh to the trump administration but the tweet is uh, a tweet from my colleague here at brookings um jung pak who's our korea expert Uh, and uh, she kind of kicked off a little bit of a hashtag last night when the news broke about Victor's non-nomination. She wrote, If Victor Cha opposes preventive strikes and ripping up CHORUS, the Korean-U.S. free trade agreement, then hashtag I'm with Victor. And I think most Korea experts would agree, strikes are not going to achieve denuclearization. And all through last night, including through the State of the Union and its obstreperous words on North Korea, the hashtag I'm with Victor was trending in dc so victor much respect
1: sounds like he knows how to make a hashtag happen
2: that's good that's a
0: nice there. like counter example of twitter used for good instead of for evil that's right
1: <laughs> uh and speaking of evil it's that time where we have to stop the podcast terrible oh, everyone dreads that that's horrific the end of the podcast it's the worst part of the week so true rational security is of course a production of a law fair you can find our show page i don't know you can find it somewhere Ben's off maybe working on transferring that show page?
2: I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. Do they have internet access in his undisclosed location? I don't know
1: where he is. Let's be honest. I have no idea where Ben is. (laughs) But I'm certain he's not trying to transfer our show page.
2: One day. One day, people. One day. One day. Keep the faith.
1: You can find us on Facebook. Search for us there. Follow us on Twitter at... R-A-T-L security. Uh, Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a nice rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Thank you for laughing at my potassium joke. I think he's the only one here who got it.
0: I I, I laughed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I
1: chuckled. He was like visibly. He was was all about it. (laughs) I appreciate you. Uh, The show is produced and edited by Jen Patial. Music this week by Devin Nunes and the new congressional Gilbert and Sullivan performance troupe, The Memo Sopranos.
0: That's
2: good. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I was like, what? What? (laughs) We'll see what Sophia has to say about that.
1: Sophia Sophia probably would be, uh, play some mean Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> I. Think she she would, would lay it down. She would. I'm not sure she would be up for traveling with Devin Nunes <laughs> in his performance troupe. However, I think that objectively she would be fine with a little modern major general.
2: Yeah, she'd play him right off stage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> On behalf of my good friends, Tamar kaufman and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.